Over the years, there have been many theories claiming that the Zodiac crimes were part of a conspiracy orchestrated by members of a satanic cult. One of the proponents of this theory was Maury Terry, a writer who became famous for his claims that the Son of Sam murders in New York were part of a satanic conspiracy. Now there's a new documentary series on Netflix inspired by Terry's claims, titled Sons of Sam, which is getting a lot of attention because it examines the theory that the man who confessed to the crimes did not act alone. There is a theory that there was a conspiracy, a satanic conspiracy, involving not only the Son of Sam murders, but the Manson killings and killings across the country. Who were these people to me? I didn't hate them. Who were to do it? Well, Sam did it through me. He used me. He made me go out there and do it. He, I did it for him, for blood. I say, hey, David, let's knock off the BS here. Who are you trying to kid? I know you know who did it. The murder of the woman who knew too much. She was the key to this whole thing. She gave him that name, Zodiac. Now investigative reporter, Maury Terry. The name Zodiac was an occult name. Zodiac. A to Z. crimes began in 1975. David Richard Berkowitz had already set hundreds of fires, but he was no longer satisfied by acts of arson. On Christmas Eve, he appeared in Co-op City, located in the Bronx borough of New York City. Armed with a knife, he attacked a woman who managed to escape. He then stabbed a teenage girl. Berkowitz fled the scene leaving the girl severely injured, although she would survive and recover from her wounds. Seven months later, in July 1976, Berkowitz resurfaced in Pelham Bay in the Bronx. Now armed with a 44 caliber Charter Arms Bulldog pistol, Berkowitz approached two women who were sitting in a parked car. He opened fire on the victims, injuring one and killing the other. The shootings continued, and police found a letter at one crime scene which appeared to be from the killer. The author referred to himself as a brat, the chubby behemoth, and Mr. Monster, but one other nickname captured the public fascination and invoked terror, the son of Sam. In another letter sent to Daily News columnist Jimmy Breslin, the killer wrote, Hello from the gutters of New York City, which are filled with dog manure, vomit, stale wine, urine, and blood. Hello from the sewers of New York City, which swallow up these delicacies when they are washed away by the sweeper trucks. Hello from the cracks in the sidewalks of New York City and the ants that dwell in these cracks and feed in the dried blood of the dead that has settled into the cracks. 
the writer claimed that he was anxious to please Sam, who was described as a thirsty lad called Sam the Terrible. The writer claimed that Sam would not let him stop killing until he gets his fill of blood. By the summer of 1977, the public was terrified by the son of Sam, who appeared to be a relentless and elusive madman, hell-bent on killing again and again without remorse. On the night of July 31, 1977, the final Son of Sam shooting occurred in Brooklyn, near a city park. A young couple was sitting in a car under a streetlight when a man approached and opened fire with a 44 caliber pistol. Both victims were shot in the head. The man survived, but 20-year-old Stacy Moskowitz died, becoming the killer's last known victim. On the night of this shooting, Berkowitz had parked his car illegally and received a parking ticket, which police later traced to him. After his arrest, Berkowitz confessed to police and stated that he was responsible for the Son of Sam shootings. He claimed that demonic forces spoke to him through the loud barking of a black Labrador retriever owned by his neighbor, Sam Carr. Berkowitz set fire to the Carr property and shot the dog. He harassed other neighbors and sent threatening letters. In his car, police found a machine gun, which he was apparently planning to use in his next attack at a nightclub. Berkowitz wanted a high body count to kill more and more people to feel more and more powerful. The victims meant nothing to him. And I had nothing against these victims. Who were these people to me? They were just people. I, I, you know, they didn't, um, I didn't hate them. I wasn't angry against them. So where did they do it? Well, Sam did it through me. He used me. He made me go out there and do it. He, I did it for him, for blood. In May 1978, David Richard Berkowitz stood in a courtroom in Brooklyn, New York. The three state Supreme Court justices who were presiding over the hearing questioned Berkowitz at length about the crimes, and they were satisfied that he was telling the truth when he confessed his guilt. He pleaded guilty on six counts of murder for the shootings attributed to the serial killer known as the Son of Sam. He was sentenced to serve 25 years to life in prison for each charge, and the sentences were to be served consecutively. Despite Berkowitz's confession, some people believe that he did not act alone. This theory became very popular after the release of the book, The Ultimate Evil, by writer Maury Terry. The book was published during the peak of what has been referred to as the Satanic Panic, a sad and embarrassing period in the 1980s and 90s when many people believed outrageous claims that groups of satanic killers were apparently hiding in the shadows all across the country. The hysteria led to many false arrests on charges of satanic ritual abuse. One of the most famous instances was the McMartin case, where a family who ran a child daycare center were accused of molesting and assaulting dozens of children as part of a satanic cult ritual. After more than seven years of accusations and several trials, 
the McMartin family was finally exonerated, and news broke that the child victims had been coached into the stories of ritual abuse. The satanic panic also invaded other true crime stories, including the case of the so-called West Memphis Three, three teenagers convicted of killing three little boys in Arkansas in 1993. Investigators and others claimed that the three teenagers were involved in occult activity and that the murders were somehow inspired by Satanism. After a series of documentary films questioned the official story, the three teenagers were eventually released from prison with the help of many people who believe that they are innocent. One of the central events in the spread of the satanic panic was a book titled Michelle Remembers, which purported to tell the story of a young woman who had survived years of ritual abuse in a satanic cult. The book was thoroughly debunked, but still became a prominent element of the belief that Satanism was a dominant force in America. In an article titled Why the Satanic Panic Never Really Ended, writer Asia Romano wrote, The earliest of the wave of satanic ritual abuse cases began in Kern County, California in 1980. In Bakersfield, social workers who had read Michelle Remembers learned of a clandestine local occult sex ring from two children who'd been coerced into fabricating the claims by a relative. Between 1984 and 1986, the investigation into these labyrinthine claims would send at least 26 people to jail in interrelated convictions, despite a complete lack of corroborative physical evidence for any of the claims. Nearly all of those convictions have since been overturned, including that of one man who served 20 years of a 40-year sentence and those of two parents who were sentenced to 240 years in prison after their own sons were coached to accuse them of abuse. In the article, The Devil in the Nursery, New York Times writer Margaret Talbot described the age of satanic panic. When you once believe something that now strikes you as absurd, even unhinged, it can be almost impossible to summon that feeling of credulity again. Maybe that is why it is easier for most of us to forget, rather than to try and explain, the satanic abuse scare that gripped this country in the early 1980s. The myth that devil worshippers had set up shop in our daycare centers, where their clever adepts were raping and sodomizing children, practicing ritual sacrifice, shedding their clothes, drinking blood, and eating feces, all unnoticed by parents neighbors, and the authorities. The satanic panic claimed many other victims and contaminated many criminal cases, but the Department of Justice issued a report in 1992 that debunked the claims of satanic ritual abuse and murders. By then, the damage had already been done, thanks to many people who exploited public fears and misconceptions about Satanism and the occult. Most individuals who identified as so-called Satanists did not believe that Satan was an actual being or entity, and they don't worship Satan. Instead, they believe that Satan is a symbol 
representing the power of the individual and the rejection of tradition. The Church of Satan teaches its members to respect the rights of animals, and killing animals is not permitted in rituals of any kind. One of the villains in Maury Terry's theory of a satanic network of killers is the Process Church of the Final Judgment, an offshoot of Scientology. The process was initially linked to the family of killers led by Charles Manson in the book Helter Skelter, and then in the book The Family by author Ed Sanders. But the church sued to have the references removed from future publications. No one had ever presented any credible evidence that the process engaged in animal sacrifices or ritual violence. The process church dissolved in 1974, but it continued to play a key role in the stories told by many proponents of the cult conspiracy theories. In 1988, at the height of the frenzy surrounding the satanic panic, the NBC network aired a two-hour television special produced by Geraldo Rivera titled Devil Worship, Exploring Satan's Underground. Rivera warned parents that the broadcast was too disturbing for children, and he also warned viewers of the dangers lurking in their own communities. Rivera said, Estimates are that there are over one million Satanists in this country. The majority of them are linked in a highly organized, very secretive network. From small towns to large cities, they have attracted police and FBI attention to their satanic ritual child abuse, child pornography, and grisly satanic murders. The odds are that this is happening in your town. The broadcast included sensational claims that Satanists had infiltrated the American military and featured various experts, including Maury Terry and the daughter of the infamous Satanist Anton LaVey. The parents of several children living in the area of the McMartin Family Daycare Center also appeared on the program and expressed outrage over the alleged acts of satanic ritual abuse against the children in their community. Other guests explained that the public was largely misinformed about Satanism, Wiccans, Pagans, and the occult in general, but Rivera and the studio audience were not impressed by such denials. Ozzy Osbourne, the heavy metal singer known for his devilish performances, also appeared via satellite in an effort to debunk the claims that the so-called satanic lyrics somehow inspired acts of violence. Rivera and others repeatedly claimed that satanic cults were actively engaged in ritualistic abuse and murder, yet no evidence was ever presented to support these claims. Geraldo Rivera's exploitation of the satanic panic was touted as the highest-rated television documentary of all time, but the show also created controversy. In an article in the New York Times, Peter J. Boyer wrote, When NBC commissioned a primetime program about Satan worship, narrated by Geraldo Rivera, they had hopes for a surefire ratings winner, but the show stirred such stout advertiser resistance that the network had to sell some commercials at rates as low 
as half price. Columnist Tom Shales echoed the opinions of many other critics when he wrote, We can stop worrying about the breakdown of standards in broadcasting because there are almost no standards left to break down. A last few of them fell on Tuesday, October 25th, when NBC gave Geraldo Rivera the first two hours of primetime to talk about butchered babies, dismembered corpses, cannibal cults, and sex orgies. Rivera's special, Devil Worship, Exploring Satan's Underground, was his first network show since ABC News got rid of him in 1985. Since then, Rivera has prospered with a series of cheesy and sleazy syndicated specials exploring the twilight zones of American society. Devil Worship was just like the syndicated shows, only worse. It was a cheap, lurid, and low-minded shocker, aired in a time slot early enough for millions of children to be watching. The same time slot where, on other nights, kids see ALF and The Cosby Show. Rivera's reputation had been damaged by the embarrassing live television event, The Mystery of Al Capone's Vaults, which promised that waiting viewers would see the hidden treasures belonging to the notorious gangster. After hours of hype, Disappointed viewers discovered that Rivera had wasted their time and the televised disaster was a turning point in his career. His subsequent syndicated talk show, Geraldo, was cited as the worst of television exploitation and sleaze, and his provocative episodes were designed to titillate and shock. In January 1990, Rivera told the National Enquirer, I'm sick of trash TV. Shows like Oprah and Donahue and even my own have gone over the line, and we've all got to stop piping sleazy, perverted material into America's homes. Rivera then launched a syndicated news series. Introducing Now It Can Be Told. Now It Can Be Told is like the best of 2020 or 60 Minutes for its hard-hitting investigative reports. It's television that targets rip-offs, fraud, and corruption. They say you can't fight City Hall. We're going to give it our best shot. Join Geraldo Rivera and the Now It Can Be Told investigative team for television that takes on the crooks. We're out to get the fat cats or we're out to get you. Now It Can Be Told tells all. Friendly fire. An American Top Gun tries to come clear. Go ahead and take them out. The Challenger crew, still alive after the explosion. Guns, drugs, and prostitutes paid for with food stamps. Princess Grace's tragic death. Who is really behind the wheel? Now it can be told. Now, know what to expect. Now it can be told. Now it can be told was one of the many so-called tabloid news shows which were popular at the time, including Hard Copy, Inside Edition, and others featuring coverage of current events, human interest stories, sex scandals, and bizarre conspiracy claims. In the early 1970s, Geraldo Rivera began his career as a credible journalist exposing the tragic abuse in a mental institution. But two decades later, he was introducing stories about celebrity gossip, Bigfoot, UFOs, 
and satanic cults. After the media frenzy surrounding the release of the book Zodiac and the terror created by the so-called copycat Zodiac killer in New York, Geraldo Rivera and his team launched a new investigation into the unsolved Zodiac murders. A mystery so troubling, we've decided to launch our own investigation. Officially, there were six murders, but there may actually have been as much as three times that number. We went to the police files, we interviewed witnesses, and analyzed the crime scenes. Our investigation was conducted with an open-minded attitude, an attitude that may have been lacking in the official investigations. She was the key to this whole thing. She gave him that name, Zodiac. The murder of the woman who knew too much, and the paroled killer who may know even more. Baker told the cops, quote, I have a problem, I'm a cannibal. That's next, as we continue our hunt for the maniac in the mask. Robert Graysmith's best-selling book, Zodiac, presented a largely fictional account of the unsolved case and perpetuated many myths regarding the life and death of Zodiac victim Darlene Farron. Graysmith's book stated that Darlene had known the Zodiac and had been killed because she planned to report him to police. Graysmith repeated many of the claims linking Darlene to a mysterious stalker. Police had identified one individual who had bothered Darlene, but he was cleared as a suspect. Later, Graysmith and others transformed these stories into tales of a menacing stranger who had terrified Darlene in the weeks and months before she was murdered. Most of the strange stories regarding Darlene could be traced back to her family, including her sisters, Linda and Pam who told psychics, reporters, and TV audiences that Darlene was stalked by a murderous stranger. Linda and Pam never bothered to share any of this information with police during the original investigation, and both had reputations as prevaricators. Even police investigators noted that the many stories told by some members of Darlene's family were false. Pam claimed that Darlene was part of a satanic cult, that she had known some of the other Zodiac victims, and that she had witnessed one or more murders. By the late 1980s, Pam was talking to reporters and appearing on talk shows such as The Sally Jesse Raphael Show. Despite her credibility problems, Pam was the ideal guest for those producing sensational tabloid television like now it can be told. Geraldo Rivera introduced the Zodiac segment titled Maniac in the Mask and bragged that his investigative reporters had unearthed new evidence. Satanic conspiracy expert Maury Terry and correspondent Alexander Johnson presented their report, which relied heavily on Graysmith's revisionist version of the Zodiac case as well as the dubious stories told by Pam and others. Terry claimed to have discovered evidence of a shocking conspiracy behind the Zodiac murders, with possible connections to a satanic cult. He cited possible suspects, such as convicted cannibal killer Stanley Dean Baker, responsible for several crimes, including 
the so-called copycat Zodiac killing of Robert Salem. Joining me now is Alexander Johnson and our crime reporter, Maury Terry. Do we have real suspects, Maury? Can we tell the folks at home that we have some people identified? Is Stanley Dean Baker, for example, a suspect? I think people within Stanley Dean Baker's satanic cult crew could legitimately be considered suspects. Also, we have identified three other people that I could safely call possible suspects at this time. People Darlene Ferrin knew closely in Vallejo. Are you going to turn this information over to the local authorities? We intend to and have been talking to them behind the scenes anyway to this point. Alexander Johnson asserted that the now investigation had proved that Darlene had known the Zodiac, citing the same stories about the mysterious stalker, which had been told by Pam and others, and also appeared in the book Zodiac. Graysmith's book included the claim that the Zodiac's telephone call to the Vallejo Police Department had been recorded, but the recording mysteriously vanished. The now broadcast included the source of this story, former Vallejo police officer Steve Baldino, who claimed that a police dispatcher had played the Zodiac recording for him shortly after the killer's call. Baldino, Graysmith, and others suggested that someone had stolen or destroyed this recording because this evidence somehow implicated an individual or individuals who were responsible for Darlene's death, yet also enjoyed the protection of the police. This theory implicated members of the Vallejo Police Department as co-conspirators in the entire Zodiac crime spree, including the murders on Lake Herman Road, the stabbing at Lake Berryessa, the killing of a San Francisco cab driver, and the many letters linked to the Zodiac. The now broadcast also suggested that Darlene was murdered because she was planning to expose one or more individuals involved in other crimes and killings. Steve Baldino was the only member of the Vallejo Police Department who ever claimed that such a recording had ever existed. During a conversation with a television producer, retired Vallejo Police Detective Jack Mullinax stated that he had never located the recording in question. Former Vallejo Police Dispatcher Nancy Slover answered the Zodiac's call to the Vallejo Police Department. She stated that the department did not have the equipment installed to record incoming calls to the police dispatcher and that the call had not been recorded. Retired Detective Ed Rust was interviewed in 1991 for Now It Can Be Told, and he stated that he believed that Darlene may have been killed as part of some conspiracy and that Michael Majot, who had survived the shooting, was withholding some information. His statements were included in a larger presentation linking Darlene's death to his own department and satanic cult activity. Yet, Russ did not endorse that theory of the crime. Later, he explained that his opinions at that time were colored by much of the misinformation regarding Darlene Farron and by the confusion created by the book Zodiac. Like many Zodiac investigators and unsuspecting readers, Rust at first believed that some of the information included in Graysmith's book was accurate, and he therefore believed that the theories about Darlene were compelling. Years later, Ed Rust said that he does not believe that Michael Majot has withheld any important information relevant to the investigation, and he did not believe that Darlene Farron was the victim of a conspiracy. 
Rust has expressed his belief that suspect Larry Kane may be the Zodiac. But Rust did not believe that Kane was working in concert with any members of the Vallejo Police Department or a satanic cult. Now It Can Be Told also featured retired Vallejo Police Detective John Lynch, who had also been assigned to the Farron investigation. He stated that he had received calls from anonymous informants telling him that Darlene was somehow connected to the occult, but Lynch added that he had never developed any further information. Some of the hippies in San Francisco, they used to phone me once in a while and tell me that she was involved with a witch, but they would never identify the witch, or, um, and they wouldn't identify themselves either, so I had no way of checking on it. These telephone calls were apparently made after the mid-1970s, after Pam and others began telling stories about Darlene's alleged connection to the Zodiac and the occult. According to the Vallejo police reports, including those written by Lynch himself, no one had ever contacted police to report any possible connection between Darlene and any occult or satanic activity of any kind. The same reports demonstrate that the Vallejo police and investigators in other jurisdictions did not believe that the Zodiac had any connection to Darlene Farron or any of the other Zodiac victims. After Darlene's murder, Vallejo police knew that someone had called police to take responsibility for the Farron Majot shooting, as well as the murders on Lake Herman Road in December 1968. Police investigated the possibility that Darlene had been killed by someone she had known. After the first Zodiac letters arrived, police continued to investigate any possibility that Darlene had known the killer or any of the other Zodiac victims. But this investigation failed to produce any evidence of any connections. Police interviewed many of the people who had known Darlene, including her family, friends, co-workers, employers, acquaintances, and others. As part of the standard investigative procedure, police asked if there was anyone who had bothered Darlene or had any reason to harm her. None of the individuals who were interviewed provided any information which would indicate that Darlene had known the killer, or that anyone had been bothering or stalking her before she was killed. Darlene's sisters, Pam and Linda, were both interviewed, and they did not provide any information to indicate that Darlene was afraid of anyone, or that she had been stalked, that she had witnessed a murder, that she had known any of the Zodiac victims, or that she was part of a satanic cult. No one who had known Darlene Farron could think of anyone who had bothered or stalked her, or anyone who would want to kill her. The only individual who was described as a possible suspect was a man named George Waters, who had apparently bothered Darlene while she worked as a waitress. Police interviewed George, and he denied any involvement in Darlene's murder. Police concluded that George was not a viable suspect. Yet, some of the stories about George were later transformed by others to create the myths about Darlene's mysterious and murderous stalker. Pam appeared in many media interviews, 
and often claimed that Darlene's murder was somehow linked to the occult and that she had been killed because she had witnessed one or more murders. Pam claimed that Darlene had come by her mother's house on the night of her death and she referred to a murder which she had previously mentioned and then stated that the story would be reported in the newspaper the next day. Pam never told this story to the police who were actually trying to find the man who had murdered her sister. Retired reporter Dave Peterson often repeated many of the stories told by Pam and Linda, including the myth that Darlene had been spending more money than she could have made as a waitress. This claim was based on the notion that Darlene had magically obtained a large sum of money in order to buy a house. Yet Darlene's husband, Dean, explained that they had purchased the home with the financial assistance of Darlene's father. Peterson was convinced that Darlene had known the Zodiac and that her alleged involvement in a satanic cult had somehow led to her death. Peterson was also an associate of Howard Davis, who claimed that the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office and other officials had orchestrated a massive conspiracy to conceal the connection between the Zodiac murders and the notorious family of cult killers led by Charles Manson. During the Now broadcast, author Maury Terry stated that Darlene Farron had an argument with an unidentified man shortly before she was killed and that she and Michael Majot were then chased to the scene of the crime. This was not the story which Majot told police in 1969, but a story which Darlene's sister Pam claimed she had been told by Darlene's cousin, Sue Ayers. According to Pam, Sue heard the story from Michael Majot while she visited him in the hospital shortly after the shooting. I talked to Sue Ayers, and she denied that she had ever visited Majot and stated that he had never told her such a story. During the investigation, no one had ever told police that Darlene had argued with anyone on the night she was killed. The story had appeared in Robert Graysmith's book. Graysmith claimed that a man had been driving by Darlene's place of work and saw a woman in a waitress uniform arguing with an unidentified man. The actual police report regarding the alleged incident stated that the witness saw a man and a woman in the parking lot, that they appeared to be talking, not arguing, and that the woman was dressed as a waitress. There was no evidence that this woman was Darlene Farron. The witness also stated that this sighting occurred in the afternoon, during daylight hours, not at night, as Graysmith and others had claimed. The stories about the argument with a stranger and the chase to the crime scene became popular myths due to the constant repetition in the age of modern media. Geraldo Rivera, Maury Terry, and the rest of the Now It Can Be Told team produced a second television segment about the Zodiac mystery titled The Man Who Knew Too Much. Correspondent Alexander Johnson stated that the previous Now investigation had produced evidence that the Zodiac had known Darlene Farron. After a summary of the earlier broadcast, Darlene's sister Pam led a film crew to the home of surviving victim Michael Majot. Pam confronted him and demanded to know the identity of the Zodiac. 
Majot remained detached and offered no answers while Pam pointed her finger in his face. Hi, Mike. Hi. Do you remember me? No, I don't. Come here. I'm Darlene's sister, Pam. Oh, hi, Pam. I'd like to talk to you. No, Mike, there was a man that Darlene was very afraid of. That hung around Darlene. That uh, I got to meet. That I got to see around her. And I believe you know who he is. Do you? Yeah, I don't know a lot of that. It's been so long ago. I don't remember a lot of his names. It took me all this time to find you. And I want you to help me. I know you can. You can't tell me you can't. You can't tell me you can't, Mike. I know you know who did it. I know you did Despite the title of the show, Majot appeared to know nothing which would help identify the man who had murdered Darlene Farron. The theory that Michael Majot held the secret which would unlock the mystery of the Zodiac was not supported by any known facts. The various stories about Majot and Darlene had circulated for two decades before Majot appeared in another interview. An aging and clearly unstable Michael Majot was interviewed for the documentary which accompanied the 2007 DVD release of the film, Zodiac. The film presented a largely fictional version of the shooting at Blue Rock Springs Park and other issues concerning Darlene Farron. Majot stated that he and Darlene had been followed to the scene of the shooting and that Darlene had warned him that the shooter was a man named Richard. According to Majot, Richard was so jealous that he would kill if he found Mike and Darlene together. Majot's new story contradicted his previous statements and seemed to be a mixture of rumors and stories which had become part of the popular myth. At the time of his interview, the makers of the film Zodiac had only included two real suspects in the movie version of the story, Arthur Lee Allen and Richard Marshall also known as Rick Martin. Despite the fact that he had already identified Allen as the man who shot him in 1969, Majot's 2007 interview also included his wish that the killer would someday be identified and executed. The claims that Darlene Farron was involved in a cult, that she had witnessed a murder, that she was stalked and killed to prevent her from reporting the truth to police, have been circulating for decades. Yet no one has ever presented any credible evidence to prove that any of these claims were true. Like the theories that the Son of Sam shootings were part of a satanic conspiracy, the stories about Darlene may seem compelling. And some people may think that these scenarios are convincing explanations for these bizarre crimes. Geraldo Rivera and Maury Terry claimed the evidence indicated that a satanic cult was behind the Zodiac murders. But as usual, the facts tell a very different story. Join us next time for part two of The Devil Rides Out.
Zodiac, A to Z. Written and produced by Michael Butterfield. Produced for ZodiacKillerFacts.com Thank you.